the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. On the program today, we'll talk with John Bursch. He's the vice president of appellate advocacy and senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom. We're going to talk about the Washington State State's, uh, Supreme Court and the rejection of the Baronella Stutzman case, Arlene's Flowers. Uh, we'll bring you up to date on what's likely to happen next. We'll also talk in the 5 o'clock hour with Hans von Spakovsky. He's a manager with the Election Law Reform Initiative and senior legal fellow with the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. We'll talk about the House vote that's uh, coming up as uh, early as tomorrow on holding the Attorney General and John McCann. Uh, McGann in contempt. And we'll talk with Amanda Barrett. She's the author of My Dearest Dietrich, a novel of Dietrich's, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Last Love. It's really a very interesting book. And when I first uh, saw it and the prospect of um, reading it and, and uh, looking at the author, I was a little skeptical, but I think she does an excellent job of being faithful to what we know to be true about his relationship with Maria, uh, the young woman who was um, many years his uh, junior Um, And never had the opportunity to marry because of events uh, surrounding Nazi Germany. Anyway, she's written a novel about it, uh, and it is a story that gives you the account of what happened. So I'm looking forward to sharing that with you uh, later in the 5 o'clock hour. But first, we'll take a look at some of the day's news. Um, uh, John Dean, the former White House counsel to Richard Nixon, a key figure in the Watergate scandal, who was convicted of conspiracy and went state's evidence to try to reduce uh, the time that he would spend uh, being held accountable, went before the um, uh, went to Capitol Hill rather today as House Democrats began a series of hearings um, this week seeking to keep the spotlight on Special Counsel Robert Mueller's report. Now the interesting thing is not all the members of the committee have actually read it, even the um, the redacted version and one that's even less redacted than the one that the public has seen. And although the week could end with Attorney General William Barr and former White House Counsel. Uh, Donald McGahn in contempt of Congress. No formal impeachment inquiry is on the table as of yet, but it's certainly not off the table. And the way forward remains pretty unclear. Prominent Democrats have continued to support the investigative path in the words of Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who is opposed to moving toward impeachment, having a very clear recollection of what happened during the Clinton years, believing that it would be in the Democrats' best interest to uh, unseat the president through the election in 2020 and not risk the um, reversal that the Republicans experienced upon impeaching Bill Clinton. Uh, anyway, some um, uh, publicly say that they hope to lead uh, this uh, movement toward impeachment. The president slammed the hearing on Sunday, calling Dean, who's also a CNN contributor, a sleazebag attorney, and that uh, Dems don't get do-overs in the Russia investigation. 
Well, even as he be- he again hailed his administration's last-minute deal on Friday with Mexico as a successful agreement to address illegal immigration at the southern border, not ours, but theirs, the president on Sunday bluntly suggested he might again seek to impose punishing tariffs on Mexico if its cooperation falls short in the future. The president and other key administration officials also sharply disputed a New York Times report claiming the deal largely had been negotiated months ago and hinted that not all major details of the new arrangement have yet been made. The president uh, made that uh, statement earlier in the day, suggesting that the legislative body in Mexico had to sign off on some elements of the agreement that was negotiated in the United States uh, this last week. And in a stance to distance itself from the president's administration, California is set to become the first state in the country to pay for tens of thousands of illegal immigrants to have full health benefits, not all but some, I believe around 90,000. These are younger uh, immigrants in the country illegally. Under an agreement between Governor Gavin Newsom and Democrats in the state legislature as part of a broader $213 billion budget, low-income adults between the ages of 19 and 25 living in California illegally would be eligible for California's Medicaid program known as Medi-Cal. The plan would take effect in January of 2020, according to the Sacramento Bee. Some observers have suggested this is the first round and what will be an ongoing uh, plan to cover seniors under a similar arrangement. And former Boston Red Sox slugger David Oritz uh, was ambushed by a man who uh, got off a motorcycle and shot him in the back at nearby um, uh, at nearly point-blank range in a nightclub in his native Dominican Republic on Sunday. A local reporter who said he'd spoken with a doctor who treated him uh, said that the bullet had hit uh, hit him in his lower back, came out his stomach. Police said Ort, uh, Ortiz is um, is uh, was transferred to a hospital where he underwent surgery. He reportedly now is in stable condition. A witness at the scene said the suspect uh, was at the scene in um, who was at the scene was in custody. Other circumstances surrounding the uh, shooting were unclear. And a fourth U.S. tourist died after he fell critically ill and suddenly. Uh, at an um, all-inclusive resort in the Dominican Republic this past April, about a month before three others died in their rooms. Uh, Robert Bell Wallace, 67, of California, became ill almost immediately after he had a, a scotch from the room minibar at the Hard Rock Hotel and Casino Resort in Punta Cana, according to his niece. Um, he was in the Dominican Republic to attend his step- stepson's wedding. That uh, brings the number uh, to four, and then there's some dispute over whether or not there might be a fifth as well. And there's an investigation moving forward. Uh, meanwhile, a florist who refused to create floral arrangements for a same-sex wedding, not for uh, the two uh, individuals who were wedding, um, will appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court after a Washington state court ruled last Thursday that she violated the state's civil rights laws. In fact, we're going to talk with Hans von Spakovsky about that. Um, actually, we're going to talk with John Bursch about that, and that's coming up later this hour. Anyway, the case presents the high court with an opportunity to decide whether conservative religious believers can use the First Amendment as a defense against laws requiring accommodation of LGBT um, ceremonies that conflict with their uh, core beliefs. A question um, the justices ducked in the 2018 Masterpiece Cake Shop ruling. You might recall the decision was based on hostility expressed toward the owner of Masterpiece, uh, not the decision itself. And a federal program requiring the use of corn-based ethanol in biodiesel and gasoline supplies hasn't lowered pump prices or significantly reduced greenhouse gas emissions. That uh, is according to the U.S. Government Accountability Office. 
Other than that, top-down government mandates are a huge success. That's tongue-in-cheek, in case you're wondering. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 19 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Coming up later in our next segment, we'll talk with John Bursch. He's vice president of appellate advocacy and senior counsel with the Alliance Defending Freedom. We'll talk about the Washington State Supreme Court's decision that, no, they did not discriminate against Baronella Stutzman, as the Supreme Court had sent the uh, decision back to them to reconsider whether or not they had taken her religious um, uh, freedom into account and were hostile toward her. We'll tell you what's going to What's likely to happen next? Well, the National Park Service quietly removed a visitor center sign saying the glaciers at Glacier National Park would disappear by 2020 due to climate change. Uh, as it turns out, higher than average snowfall in recent years upended computer model projections from the early 2000s. And the National Park Service based its claims that glaciers will all be gone by the year 2020, according to federal officials. A little red faced, they took it down. Hugh Culverhouse Jr., the University of Alabama's largest donor, has called for boycotts against the state and against the University of Alabama, only it's new over rather its new abortion law that protects unborn babies. The University of Alabama responded on Friday by returning a $21.5 million gift that it received from Culverson, who had allegedly tried to interfere in the operations of their law school. The school also removed his name from the law school. And on this day in 1937, Alcoholics Anonymous is founded in Akron, Ohio, by Dr. Robert Holbrook Smith and William Griffin Wilson. Also on this day in 1971, President Richard Nixon lifts a two-decades-old trade embargo on China. And on this day in 1977, James Earl Ray, the convicted assassin of Martin Luther King Jr., escapes from Brushby Mountain State Prison in Tennessee with six others. He would be recaptured. A few days later, and on this day in 1967, six days of war in the Middle East uh, involving Israel, Syria, Egypt, Jordan and Iraq end as Israel and Syria accept a United Nations mediated ceasefire. Well, I'm going to I'm going to skip over a couple of things here. Well, President Trump's uh, threat to raise tariffs against all Mexican imports if that government didn't act to stop the flow of Central American migrants to the United States border appears to be working. On Thursday, Mexican officials offered a big concession, promising to immediately deploy 6,000 National Guard troops to Mexico's southern border with Guatemala. Also, Mexico froze the bank accounts of 26 individuals for allegedly participating in migrant smuggling and the organization of illegal migrant caravans. Well, on Friday night, the president announced, I was pleased to inform you that the United States of America has reached a signed agreement with Mexico. The tariffs scheduled to be implemented by the U.S. on Monday, today, against Mexico, are hereby indefinitely suspended. Mexico, in turn, has agreed to take uh, strong measures to stem the tide of migration through Mexico and to our southern border, end quote. Mexico also reportedly agreed to significantly overall uh, overhaul asylum protocols so as to require applicants to take permanent refuge in the first safe country in which they arrive. Should this asylum overhaul go into effect, it would, in theory, stem the flow of migration uh, caravans through Mexico. Any migrant requesting asylum in the United States whose country of Oregon was south of Mexico would be sent to the closest country of refuge adjacent to their homeland, which, by the way, is what the law 
currently requires. Vice President Mike Pence noted the progress, stating there's been movement of, on Mexico's part. It's been encouraging. The discussions are uh, going to continue in the days ahead. However, Pence made it clear that the president has the final say. As the border crisis intensifies, uh, m- many saw uh, more than 132,000, or rather May, saw 132,000 migrants detained after illegally crossing into the United States. U.S. Customs and Border Protection is overwhelmed, overworked, undermanned, and bursting at the seams with migrant detainees. And the um, uh, Congress has been unwilling to act in any manner to help end the crisis, instead passing an amnesty bill in the House this past week. Well, the president is left to wield one of the few effective tools he has to deal with the problem, and that's tariffs, which should not be wielded for political purposes, but it certainly does use the heft of the U.S. economy to try to address this crisis. And while many Republicans and conservatives are concerned over the economic impact of uh, Trump tariffs, and rightly so, one question few seem willing to address or even acknowledge is the greater and arguably longer-term economic impact on the American worker uh, when the uh, immigration uh, crisis continues. The free market is the best system so long as everyone is playing by the same rules. Immigration undercuts these rules when it's illegal, cheating American workers and taxpayers, rectifying the problem is never easy or painless. And this was the tool that the president chose to wield in this latest round with Mexico. We'll see how that holds. John Dean, the former White House counsel to Richard Nixon, implicated in Watergate, uh, testified uh, today that he sees remarkable parallels between Watergate and what is in special counsel Robert Mueller's report about President Trump. Now, this is really quite fascinating because he has no firsthand knowledge of uh, what's happened in the Trump administration. And he is certainly discredited. He was disbarred. He spent time in prison. <laughs> Just really quite remarkable that he was on the lineup. He has no firsthand account or inside knowledge of anything related to the issues that Congress is currently dealing with. But in testimony before the House Judiciary Committee, he uh, an outspoken critic of the current president. Uh, said, according to uh, prepared remarks, that he would like to address a few of the remarkable parallels that he finds in the Mueller report that echo Watergate, particularly those related to obstruction of justice, which, of course, he was responsible for orchestrating under the Nixon administration. Again, it's breathtaking. In comparing uh, Watergate to the Russian probe, he said... In both situations, the White House counsel was implicated in the cover-up activity. Dean acknowledged being an active participant in that cover, uh, cover-up for a period of time during Watergate, but said he doesn't believe Trump's White House counsel, Don McGahn, participated in any illegal or improper activity. Still, he said there's no question Mr. McGahn was a critical observer of these activities, as there is evidence he prevented several obstruction attempts. Among other parallels, uh, he argued in the Russian probe, the underlying crime was the hacking of the Democratic National Committee and Hillary Clinton campaign. In Watergate, the underlying crime was the break in of the Democratic National uh, Committee, he said. And while Dean pointed out that the Mueller report found no conspiracy that Trump engaged in uh, with the Russians, he also said he doesn't believe Nixon himself was involved in the actual break in and bugging during Watergate. Yet events in both 72 and 16 uh, resulted in an obstruction of the investigations. Well, Dean apparently knows more than Mueller, who said he didn't have sufficient evidence uh, to charge that uh, uh, obstruction had actually taken place. Again, uh, could you find a less credible uh, witness before the House committee? There were others as well, I should uh, should mention. Well, to impeach or not to impeach, that is the question that's being pondered 
uh, by at least half of the Democrats in the House. The other half have already decided, yeah, we need to move forward. It's the question that they are ferociously uh, debating among themselves as they try to figure out the best way to attack President Donald Trump short of the 2020 election. But what exactly is impeachment and how hard would it be to impeach the president and to actually remove him from office? And keep in mind, uh, Richard Nixon, he avoided impeachment by stepping aside. Bill Clinton was impeached and he was reelected. The average American, understandably, isn't an expert on impeachment. Only two presidents have been impeached by the House. That's Andrew Johnson back in 1868 and Bill Clinton in 1999. Neither man lost his job, however. Well, the other day, someone uh, who uh, isn't a lawyer asked if Trump would go to prison if he were impeached. The question was taken Uh, has taken on new prominence since House Speaker Nancy Pelosi reportedly told senior House Democrats on Tuesday that she doesn't want to see him impeached. She wants to see him in prison. Pelosi knows that impeachment couldn't result in imprisonment or uh, of the president uh, of the president. Rather, her wish apparently is to lock him up after he leaves office, preferably after being defeated for reelection next year. Well, impeachment is complicated and it takes time. Parliamentary uh, democracies can quickly remove a prime minister when a majority of lawmakers casts a vote of no confidence in their leader. But here in the U.S., the impeachment process is a much tougher task to accomplish. With so much speculation about impeachment in the news, it might be a good idea to uh, look at impeachment 101. What is it? How does it um, how does it happen? Well, the first question is, what is impeachment? Well, it has nothing to do with criminal prosecutions carried out by the U.S. Justice Department for violations of federal law, although such criminal violations may form the basis for impeachment. Instead, as outlined uh, in the Guide to the Constitution that was produced by the Heritage Foundation, impeachment is the process set out in Article 2, Section 4 of the U.S. Constitution for Congress to remove from office the president, the vice president, or all civil officers of the United States for treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. There's also a second process that applies only to the president. That's the 25th Amendment, and that provides for the temporary transfer of the powers of the presidency to the vice president if the president is unable to discharge the duties of his office, such as uh, physical or other disability. Article 1, Section 2 of the Constitution, the House of Representatives has the sole power of impeachment. Well, in other words, only the House can pass a resolution of impeachment alleging that a president has committed high crimes and misdemeanors. Now, that kind of resolution requires only a simple majority vote. It's similar to a criminal indictment by a grand jury. It is an unproven list of charges that a president has engaged in actions that warrant his impeachment. Now, again, it's a list of unproven charges, so they don't have the burden of having to prove that these are legitimate uh, charges. If the House passes that kind of an impeachment resolution, then the process moves to the Senate. Under Article 1, Section 3 of the Constitution, the Senate has the sole power to try all impeachments. Now, the Senate, in essence, becomes a trial court with all the senators sitting as judge and jury. Based on historic practice, members of the House can act as prosecutors. It's important to note, though, that the entirety, um, uh, it's entirely up to the Senate to decide whether to hold trial. There's no obligation under the Constitution to do so, even if there's a referral from the House. Now, that means that even if the Democratic majority in the House votes to impeach the president, the Republican majority in the Senate could decide to not even consider removing him from office. Uh, House Democrats opposing impeaching the president say there's no point in passing an impeachment resolution because it would most likely uh, would most likely be dead on arrival in the Senate. There's more and we'll share it with you 
uh, a bit later in the program. Up next, we'll talk with John Bursch, and we'll find out what the Washington Supreme Court said about Baronella uh, Stutzman and her flower shop. What happens next? We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, a florist who refused to create floral arrangements for a same-sex wedding will appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court after a Washington state court ruled on Thursday that she violated the state's civil rights law. Well, the case presents the high court with an opportunity to decide whether conservative religious believers can use the First Amendment as a defense against laws requiring accommodation to LGBT people. A question the justices ducked in the 2018 Masterpiece Cake Shop ruling. Well, we're going to talk with uh, my guest, John Bursch. He's vice president of appellate advocacy and senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom about what happened and what's likely to happen next. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on today. Well, the Supreme Court had already ruled on the uh, uh, Baron Ellis case. Uh, they were advised by the Supreme Court. It was sent back to them to reconsider in light of the Masterpiece Cake Shop case to determine uh, whether or not they had discriminated against her based on her religious worldview. Uh, talk a little bit about that process and what what was different about their response after the Supreme Court said, you need to take another look at this. Sure. Well, starting with the first time through the Washington state court system, um, what, what Baron now explained repeatedly is that she serves everyone, but she can't participate in an event or express a message through her artistic flower work uh, that violates her religious faith. And she had served this particular client, Rob, for nine and a half years, made all kinds of floral arrangements for him, celebrating every kind of occasion. And it was only when he asked her to participate in his same-sex wedding that she respectfully declined. And on that basis, the Washington State Supreme Court held that she discriminated based on his sexual orientation, which was kind of an odd holding. And so she asked the U.S. Supreme Court to review the case, and they did vacate that decision and send it back to the Supreme Court of Washington to reconsider in light of the Masterpiece decision. And as your listeners will recall, Masterpiece Cake Shop, the Supreme Court held that the government cannot act with hostility or animus towards someone because of their religion. And so we thought that's what the court would be talking about. But the Washington State Supreme Court took a very narrow view of that. Instead of looking at the hostility that the Attorney General of the State of Washington had shown in prosecuting Baronell, they said that the Masterpiece decision only applied to the judicial branch, decision-makers. And because they, the Washington Supreme Court, didn't act with bias, everything was okay. And so now she's forced to go back up, and she can re-raise the claim she did the first time, free speech and free exercise, but also raise this Masterpiece claim. Well, this is uh, somewhat frustrating because one would, first of all, would have hoped the Supreme Court would have resolved the core issue that existed in the Masterpiece case as well as in in this case. But they deferred to um, lesser, maybe lesser isn't the right word, but to another issue that would allow um, the the question to finally be um, addressed as to whether or not uh, there's a, a provision for conscience in the First Amendment that doesn't force an individual to participate in an event that conflicts with their core religious values. Yeah, and that's kind of intuitive to all of us. Our country was founded on the notion that people should be able to be free to live out their faith in public life, including in their business. And I'm looking forward to another opportunity to ask the U.S. Supreme Court to say definitively that a business owner doesn't have to express messages or participate in events that violate their religious beliefs. 
Now, the Supreme Court does tend to act in small steps incrementally, and I think that's why they decided to reach the decision they did in Masterpiece Cake Shop on such a narrow ground. Mm -hmm. But now, Baronell's case is the perfect opportunity for them to come back and take the next important step, And, and we need them to do that because there are cases like this pending all over the country. One of the things that um, the Supreme Court uh, didn't take into account, and maybe because uh, the decision uh, that was made regarding her business was made by someone who was not a judge, was the fact that the prosecutor had sued her personally, not just her business and the assets related to the business, but sued Baronell personally so that if she loses in the long run, she will lose or will likely lose everything. Isn't that evidence of, uh, of hostility? You would certainly think so. Um, It was very unusual for the attorney general to sue her in her individual capacity as well as her business capacity, and that wasn't the only evidence. Uh, The attorney general didn't even receive a complaint about Barron, though. He reached out and decided to bring this suit on his own when he saw on social media that Rob's partner had complained about Barron being unable to participate in their wedding event. What's more, there were complaints about another vendor in the state of Washington, a coffee shop, which very rudely and profanely had expelled some Christian customers from the shop because they were talking about their faith on premises. And the attorney general didn't do anything meaningful in response to those actual complaints. So it's pretty clear that the AG treated her differently with hostility, exactly what the court was talking about in Masterpiece, but by... Um, construing Masterpiece in such a way that it only applied to judges, not to AGs, the Washington Supreme Court ducked that issue, which was unfortunate. So what happens next? We're reading that Baronell intends to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. What might we expect moving forward? Well, it takes about three to four months to put together a request like that and submit it to the Supreme Court. So that will likely happen uh, at the beginning of the fall. And then the Supreme Court will have an opportunity to decide whether it takes the case or not. And that's likely to happen in December or January. If it happens uh, as early as that, then the oral argument could take place in March or April of 2020. And we could have a decision by the end of June next year. If they decide to put it off a little longer, it could be as late as the fall of 2020 before the argument takes place. Um, But we really do think that this is a great opportunity for the Supreme Court to take the next step after Masterpiece and protect the freedom of everyone everywhere to live out their faith in their businesses without fear of being punished by the government. Well, we'll certainly follow with uh, great interest what happens next. And I so appreciate Alliance Defending Freedom uh, standing with her as well as uh, Masterpiece in, uh, in championing the religious freedom that we are guaranteed under our founding documents. Thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you. Really appreciate it. You too. Yeah, we'll we'll certainly continue to follow that case as it moves forward. Just before my conversation with John Birch, who is uh, vice president of appellate advocacy and senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom, I was talking about uh, what an impeachment is and what would have to happen in order for President Trump to be impeached, as some Democrats suggest uh, should happen. One of the things we talked about before my conversation with uh, Mr. Bursch is the fact that uh, the House uh, can call for impeachment. It then is up to the Senate to decide whether or not to prosecute. They are not obligated to do so, even if the uh, House were to um, ask uh, or at least um, file for impeachment. So the fact that the House is predominantly Democrat, the Senate predominantly Republican has 
caused some House Democrats to oppose impeaching the president, not on the merits, but saying that it's pointless, given the fact that the Senate is not likely uh, to take it up. Well, So how does an impeachment trial work if that were to be the case? Well, if the Senate did decide to hold an impeachment trial, and that's only if the um, the House were to uh, call for one. The Constitution says the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court has to preside over the proceeding. It takes a vote of two-thirds of the members present in the Senate to convict any federal of, uh, official subject to an impeachment charge, including the president. So two-thirds of the Senate would have to approve. Now, the two-thirds vote to convict means that 67 votes are needed in the 100-member Senate to remove the president and other federal officers from office. That's a very high hurdle that's probably possible to leap over in the case of Trump. Now, that's assuming that we're talking about a partisan review. Now, Democrats and independents allied with them um, hold only 47 seats in the Senate, meaning that even if they all voted to convict Trump, they would also need the votes of 20 Republican senators. Now, it's not impossible. It's just unlikely. Not a single GOP senator has called for the president to be impeached so far, and the chances of 20 jumping on board Uh, That bandwagon is pretty slim at this point. Well, as mentioned earlier, if a federal officer is convicted by the Senate, it's not a criminal conviction. The Constitution states that impeachment shall not extend further than uh, to removal of office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust or profit under the United States. In other words, a federal official can be removed from office. He or she can also be banned from holding any other federal office in the future. But again, it's not a criminal charge. Well, what happens when a president or other official is removed, which is um, can be different from impeached? Although the other hand, conviction does not bar the removed official from being liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, punishment, according to the law. So a federal official who's impeached, convicted and removed from office, such as a federal judge or the president of the United States, can then be criminally prosecuted if Uh, He or she has violated a federal law, such as accepting bribes or engaging in treatment uh, in treason, and that would have to be proven. So how is impeachment different from a trial court? Now, again, we're talking about Congress conducting it all. That's one difference. But the most important point to understand about impeachment is that it's not a legal proceeding like a federal criminal prosecution. And none of the procedural rules that apply to both criminal and civil trials in federal courts apply. Other than the constitutional division of labor between the House and the Senate, each would play a different role in that process. The directive that the chief justice provides uh, it is uh, when it's the president being impeached and the requirement of a two-thirds vote to convict, it is entirely up to the House and the Senate to set the rules for how to proceed with impeachment. It's also entirely up to Congress to determine what it considers treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. It's not explicitly um, stated in the Constitution. What constitutes um, uh, impeachment and the grounds for it, they determine. And the Supreme Court in 1993, a case called Nixon versus the U.S., held that the impeachment process is a political question. It's not an issue that is reviewable by or within the jurisdiction of the federal court. So it is settled, initiated, and carried out by Congress. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
We're back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up at 5, we'll talk with Hans von Spakovsky. He is the manager of the Election Law Reform Initiative and senior legal fellow at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. We'll talk about the House vote that's pending uh, on uh, contempt charges against the Attorney General and John McCann. We're also going to uh, talk with Amanda Barrett. She is a novelist and has written My Dearest Dietrich, a novel of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Last Love, which is a faithful uh, account of the relationship between Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Maria, the woman he had hoped he would one day marry. That's coming up in the five o'clock hour. We're talking about impeachment, what it is, the process that's required, and uh, how it's been used in the past. In answer to that question, it's important to look that during the course of our history, the House's House of Representatives has impeached 19 federal officials, 15 judges, including Associate Justice of the Supreme Court Samuel Chase, one cabinet member, one U.S. senator, and Presidents Andrew Johnson and Bill Clinton, according to a a report by the Congressional Research Service. And lots of people mistakenly believe that President Richard Nixon was impeached. In fact, Nixon resigned in 74 after the House Judiciary Committee recommended impeachment, but before a resolution of impeachment could be voted on by the House. Both Johnson and Clinton were acquitted in their impeachment trials held in the Senate, both Johnson and Clinton. So they were impeached, uh, but... Uh, the trials uh, in the um, held in the Senate led to their acquittal of the 14 other impeachment trials held. Only eight resulted in convictions. All of uh, of them were federal judges. The last such trial um, was in the Senate hearing room was a former federal judge, Judge Thomas Porteous Jr. He was convicted in 2010 by the Senate uh, on four articles of impeachment, including receiving cash and favors from lawyers. Uh, who were practicing before him and lying to the FBI and the Senate during a nomination process. So what is an impeachable offense? What is high crimes and misdemeanors, as we mentioned earlier, as defined by the House? Well, impeachment is probably not limited to criminal acts. Treason and bribery are clearly criminal violations, but the Constitution doesn't define high crimes and misdemeanors. Alexander Hamilton argued in Federalist 65 that impeachable offenses would include the misconduct of public men or the abuse or violation of some public trust. According to the 2015 Congressional Research Service report, both houses of Congress have in the past given the phrase high crimes and misdemeanors pretty broad um, reading, finding that impeachable offenses need not be limited to criminal conduct. It can just be misbehavior uh, that displeases the House. Well, is impeachment really about the law or is it about politics? Well, my answer would be, yeah, and yeah, it could be one or the other or both. Impeachment really is a political process. If a majority of Americans don't believe uh, that the impeachment of the president is warranted because no actual wrongdoing has occurred, there seems little doubt that members of Congress pushing impeachment will be unsuccessful and may suffer damaging political consequences at the ballot box. After Republicans tried and failed to remove Bill Clinton through impeachment, they lost seats in the Congress in the next election. Democratic opponents of impeaching, of impeaching Trump fear this could, in fact, happen to them if they impeach President Trump. Now, I think it's very important to note that uh, President Clinton's popularity uh, is, was quite different at the time, 
and he had the favor of the media. Donald Trump certainly does not have the favor of the media, so it's a different uh, playing field this time around. The impeachment process wasn't placed in the Constitution, so it could be used for crass partisan gamesmanship, but was instead created to remedy serious misbehavior by federal officials. If members of the House or the Senate start voting to impeach a president because they simply oppose his policies, we could see a lot more attempts to impeach presidents in the future because the truth is there's always a difference of opinion between one party or the other. Members of Congress should be wary of abusing the impeachment authority in such a manner because it could imperil the stability of our constitutional structure by removing duly elected presidents, which is a very serious thing. Whether you're a Republican or a Democrat and whether you support or oppose the current president, you should oppose making impeachment a frequently used move against presidents of the United States. Someday a president you think is doing a great job could be targeted. So, It should be a um, a process that is measured and applied in severe cases. Peggy Noonan uh, writes this. It is a grave matter to overturn an election result. Why more cutting divide uh, uh, an already divided country? There is no argument that impeachment would enhance America's position in the world and no reason to believe it would not have some negative impact on the economy, meaning jobs. The presidential election is in 2020. What is gained from devoting the coming year to an effort that will fail in the Senate? There's no reason to believe the public is for it. It won't move the needle. Those who like President Trump like him. Those who do not, do not. Everyone already knows what they think. For Democrats, it could backfire, alienating moderates and rousing those of the president's supporters who care little for him personally but appreciate his policy achievements, such as his appointment of judges. Why rouse their wrath? If Mr. Trump is acquitted, he will pose... As an innocent but unstoppable victor over a witch hunt led by a liberal elite. Well, it's an interesting perspective, and it's based on, uh, to some degree, the experience with Bill Clinton and that failed effort to remove him from office. He was impeached, but again, the Senate acquitted him, as was the case with President Johnson before him. Well, the latest poll of Iowa voters sparked reactions from several 2020 Democratic presidential candidates who said the large primary field means even uh, candidates with relatively low numbers are viable contenders. That's one way to look at it. Well, the benchmark Des Moines Register and CNN poll released on Saturday night showed former Vice President Joe Biden's lead narrowing. Though he retained a significant advantage with 24% support, second place was a three-way statistical tie with Senator Bernie Sanders. 2020 Democrats take um, veiled shots at uh, the vice president or former vice president in the uh, in Iowa. Uh, at 15 percent and uh, and in South Bend, Indiana, Mayor Pete Buttigieg at 14 percent. So you have Bernie Sanders, you have Buttigieg, and you have um, oh, who's the uh, Elizabeth Warren, uh, who is uh, making her way up in numbers in those polls. She's at least one of the candidates that has offered um, actual uh, policy uh, provisions uh, or proposals. Well, appearing Sunday morning on CNN's State of the Union, Sanders said it's unlikely any candidate will achieve uh, 50 percent support in Iowa. He noted that neither he nor former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton were able to break 50 in the 2016 Iowa caucuses. Clinton ultimately won by a fraction of a point and added that uh, the large field makes it even more daunting uh, for Democrats who are running this time around. We're not going to get 50% of the Iowa vote. I don't think anybody will, Sanders says. Polls have shown the Vermont senator has consistently been in second place behind Biden, but the Iowa poll is the first to show other candidates coming close. Former Representative Beto O'Rourke, meanwhile, waved off his uh, weaker showing in the polls, which put him at, 12, at uh, 2% down from the 11% in December, despite a blitz of appearances across 
the first in the nation caucus states. I don't know that this uh, many months out from the caucus in um, Iowa that these polls are really uh, important, that they indicate what our prospects are, he said, and would be expected to say. He was speaking uh, to George Stephanopoulos on ABC this week on Sunday. If I relied on polls in any race I'd ever run in, he said, I never would have been able to serve in the United States Congress. We never would have tried to take on Ted Cruz, and we would have uh, been able to uh, wouldn't have been able to lead the largest grassroots effort in the state of Texas. Well, Senator Amy Klobuchar also responded to the poll, which showed her at 2%, putting her among the top six polling candidates. That percentage, she noted on CBS Face the Nation, put her ahead of 18 other candidates. And in a field of, what, 24, 25, I guess, being ahead of 18 candidates is something. I'm clearly on the debate stage and expect to be there in the fall, she said. Elizabeth Warren didn't appear on any of the Sunday shows, but the numbers reflect one of her best Iowa showings since she entered the race. That's a strong showing for Elizabeth Warren, one pollster said, who conducted the survey. I think that all of the publicly the, uh, the publicity lately and all the polls lately are so Biden-heavy that for her to have any metric uh, that shows her on par, it says to me there are people who are paying attention Attention. Nine candidates, including New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio, the most recent entrant, uh, polled at zero percent, nine of them among uh, de Blasio. There's always been a question mark as to how many can get any real traction. And we gave them uh, every opportunity to show that they have some kind of constituency here. But there's a fair number who their uh, constituency just isn't very big and certainly not in that particular state. So it'll be interesting to see what happens when the first rounds of debates uh, happen. The stage has a smaller number and who can uh, at least stand for the short term. Well, Oregon is voted to become the 15th state to grant its electoral college votes to whoever wins the popular vote across the country. The Oregon House sent the governor a measure to join the National Vote Interstate Compact. It's a, a pledge between states to ignore the electoral college and essentially overhaul the way the nation elects presidents. Not that it'll have any impact in Oregon that hasn't uh, elected a, a Republican in quite some time. The agreement would only kick it uh, kick in rather when enough states join uh, to reach the 270 electoral vote threshold. That's the number needed to ensure the presidency. Supporters say the current system encourages presidential candidates to focus their attention on only a handful of battleground states, which is interesting because the um, uh, Electoral College was designed to offset the imbalance of uh, candidates going to the larger states and permitting them to elect who ultimately uh, sits in Washington. Governor Brown has uh, indicated she will sign that measure. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a few moments. And when we return, we'll talk with Hans von Spakovsky. We'll talk about uh, whether or not the House is going to hold uh, Barr and McGahn in contempt. And we'll talk with Amanda Barrett. She's a novelist. Her latest book, My Dearest Dietrich. Yes, that Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back six minutes after five o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we'll talk with Amanda Barrett. She is the author of My Dearest Dietrich, a novel of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Last Love. It's a rather fascinating account of the relationship between he and his fiancée, who was uh, considerably younger, and how the two of them were motivated by their faith to stand against Nazi Germany and how it cost them everything. She is faithful to their story in uh, the novel, and I think you'll enjoy hearing more about that coming up later in today's program. Well, House Judiciary Committee Chairman Gerald Nadler announced today that he plans to hit pause on efforts to hold Attorney General Bill Barr in contempt after reaching a deal with the Justice Department for access to evidence related to former Special Counsel Robert Mueller's Russia report. 
Uh, in a statement, Nadler announced the agreement with the Justice Department to turn over key evidence from Mueller's investigation pertaining to the review of whether President Trump obstructed justice. But is that uh, essentially putting an end to uh, the potential of uh, the attorney general and um, uh, Mr. McCann, Mr. McGann, rather, uh, facing uh, contempt charges. Well, here to talk with us about what's happening is Hans von Spakovsky. He's manager of the Election Law Reform Initiative and senior legal fellow at the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. Thank you for joining us once again to help clarify what's happening in Washington. Sure, Georgine. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> if it's possible to clarify what's happening in Washington. <laughs> now, when we hear that uh, House Judiciary Committee Chairman Nadler is... Um, Uh, pausing an effort to hold the attorney general in contempt. Is that an end to this uh, talk of holding he and McGahn in contempt just by this committee, the whole House? What's happening? Well, it's a temporary abeyance of it. It's like a temporary armistice, I think. But um, the the members of the House, Democratic members of the House, including uh, Chairman Nadler, who's the head of the Judiciary Committee, I mean, I think they're going to keep pushing. You know, they previously asked for basically every document that um, uh, Bob Mueller generated uh, in his two-year investigation. And we're talking there about millions of pages of documents. It's pretty clear that um, the, the, the House Democrats are making the mistake of thinking that they are uh, a second Justice Department and that they want to basically reinvestigate uh, everything that Mueller looked at for the last two years. And I think that's a very big mistake. Now, what are the rules that Barr is following? Uh, there are some things that we're being told he cannot make available because they in- include grand jury materials. Are these rules that were set by Congress? And uh, is it just a simple matter of changing the rules by uh, the process of, of lawmaking? Or is uh, is Barr using his own judgment? Because there seems to be some question as to whether or not he's done all that he can. Peggy Noonan had an article uh, earlier today that, that suggested that Barr has turned over all the documents he can release in the Mueller probe. Is that the case, or uh, is he um, uh, is he just using his own judgment? Well, he hasn't turned over grand jury material, and he's barred by federal law from doing that. There's a specific provision within the uh, rules of procedure that govern uh, criminal cases in the federal courts. And those kind of grand jury materials cannot be publicly released. And, you know, Nadler and others have been really pushing Barr on this as if he can waive that. He can't. Um, He's bound by the grand jury secrecy rules just like everyone else. I mean, the other information that he had previously that uh, they had redacted from the Mueller report was uh, classified uh, information. That's been made available not to the entire House, but to the leadership uh, over on the House and Senate side. So, uh, I, look, I really think he's provided everything he can, and I think these threats of holding in, him in contempt are frankly unjustified. And I have to say, I think what's really going on here is. I think Chairman Nadler and other Democrats are so disappointed uh, that the Mueller investigation uh, 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 basically showed that the Russian collusion claim was was a hoax, that I think they're trying to push the contempt idea because they want to fool the American people into thinking there's some kind of cover-up going on, and that's, that's not happening. 
Well, my understanding is that um, House Democrats, the, the full House, are still moving forward with holding White House counsel Don McGahn and um, Barr in contempt uh, for a number of things. And there's a possible floor action on Tuesday. How does that differ from what the Judiciary Committee is doing? And what exactly are they claiming in, in uh, holding these two in contempt? Well, they're holding, they want to hold uh, Don McGahn in contempt because they wanted to bring him in to question him about the Mueller investigation, and the president asserted executive privilege. Um, holding McGahn in contempt, again, is unjustified because uh, as the former White House counsel, um, he, he can't voluntarily uh, come in and testify when the president says, I'm asserting executive privilege, and he can't reveal any information or advice he's given to me. And executive privilege is a recognized constitutional doctrine. Uh, prior, many prior presidents have asserted it, including uh, Barack Obama. And I don't seem to recall uh, anybody saying that Barack Obama should be uh, impeached when he asserted executive privilege. Uh, last last month, um, Mr. Mueller himself maintained that there was not sufficient evidence to charge a conspiracy with regard to whether members of the Trump campaign coordinated with the Russian government during the 2016 election. But he left open the question of whether the president obstructed justice. It seemed to me a very careless series of statements if he was trying to resolve anything. And that was has been interpreted by Democrats in the House that he was essentially handing the ball to them, that they now needed to do what he was unable to do or unwilling to do moving forward. Your thoughts on whether or not Mueller has stirred the pot more than it might otherwise have been by his uh, brief comments uh, made just uh, last month? Yeah, I think he made a major mistake that showed... Uh, to me, it made me question his judgment. Look, the job of a prosecutor is to investigate a case and decide whether or not there's sufficient evidence to prosecute. He did that correctly when it came to the Russian collusion claim. He didn't do that correctly when it came to the obstruction claim. He just simply left that open. Um, He should have made his recommendation as to whether or not there was sufficient evidence to prosecute and then left it up to the attorney general to make the final decision on that. Uh, by leaving it open like that, he, he leads to all this confusion uh, over the issue. Um, I, I do think it's a mistake for Democrats to say that there's sufficient evidence of obstruction um, uh, to warrant impeachment because, look, the Attorney General examined the evidence, so did the number two at Justice, Rod Rosenstein, who appointed the special counsel in the first place, and they've concluded that there's not sufficient evidence to charge the president with obstruction of, of justice. And I think anybody with a little bit of common sense looking at this will agree with that because, one, there was no underlying crime. Uh, so <laughs> there wasn't anything to, to obstruct when it came to, to that. And second, um, there was no obstruction. Uh, Bob Mueller was not restricted in any way in his investigation. He was given all the time and resources he needed, so there was no obstruction. Uh, just one uh, quick question before our time runs out. Uh, what did you think about the um, the committee calling for John Dean to testify earlier today, uh, the former Nixon aide John Dean, the discredited John Dean, uh, to help clarify issues related to this ongoing probe? I, I think that was... Uh, 
uh, blatant evidence that they are just engaging in political grandstanding. Look, he's a uh, he's a a felon, a disbarred lawyer, and and has absolutely no fa- facts of any kind relevant to this case. Why bring him in other than? Uh, to to engage in political grandstanding. Well, it was really quite remarkable to me that he was uh, called in. But I guess if you're a useful tool, then you <laughs> you can be used by one side or the other. Hey, thanks so much for talking with us. Sure, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Again, Hans von Spakovsky. Up next, we're going to talk with Amanda Barrett, author of My Dearest Dietrich, a novel of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Last Love. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer is probably familiar to many of you. He was a devoted Christian, famous for his resistance to Adolf Hitler's Nazi government. Well, many people know Bonhoeffer's record, well, at least part of it, at least. What many do not know is that Bonhoeffer was actually part of a real-life love story. My next guest is the author of My Dearest Dietrich. She's a best-selling novelist. Amanda Barrett takes readers deeply into the life of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his true love, Maria von Wedemeyer. Well, through detailed historical research, including photos, she takes readers behind the scenes of this hero of the faith and the woman whose love changed his life. Yes, there's a love story connected with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and it's, uh, it's just fascinating uh, to read about. Well, my guest, Amanda Barrett, is an ECPA bestselling author of several novels and novellas. She's a member of the American Christian Fiction Writers and a two-time FHL Reader's Choice Award finalist. She and her family live in northern Michigan. But she joins us today by phone to talk about her latest book, My Dearest Dietrich, a novel of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Lost Love. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. It's so great to be here. Well, this is an interesting book. Now, obviously, you have written works of fiction before. We don't often talk about uh, novels. I should say you've written novels before. We don't often talk about them here on this program. But this is such a fascinating story and sort of fills in a part of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life that few of us are familiar with. What inspired you to take on this subject and to write this book? So the first time I heard Dietrich Bonhoeffer's story, I was sitting around the dinner table, and my mom was sharing about the book she was currently reading, and that book was Eric Metaxas's Seven Men and the Secret of Their Greatness. And I was fascinated by the story of a pastor and theologian who stood boldly against the Nazi regime, a, Ger- a German pastor, no less. And a few months later, I came across a quote from a book called Love Letters from Cell 92, which is the book containing Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his fiancée, Maria von Wedemeyer's correspondence. And instantly a question begged to be asked, and that question was what kind of a woman would capture the heart of a man like Dietrich Bonhoeffer? And I couldn't stop thinking as time went by about this remarkable love story and wondering why it had never been told. And I've heard it said, if you can't find the book you want to read, write it. And after a lot of prayer, that's exactly what I decided to do. Well, where do you begin in taking up a book like that? And obviously you mentioned there is a book of the letters that he had written to her. But to learn more about her, where do you begin? Well, the book Love Letters from Cell 92 was the foremost research about Maria because not a lot has been told or written about her. The very first biography about Dietrich Bonhoeffer was written by his friend Eberhard Detka, and it was over a thousand pages long, and Maria was mentioned on only four of them, which was astonishing to me because she played such a great role in Dietrich's um, final years. And so Love Letters from Cell 92 is my foremost resource. 
I also was able to, I found a book that was written in German that was about Dietrich and Maria, and I, so I discovered that. And one of my favorite resources about Maria was actually an interview that she did in 1974 for Malcolm Muggeridge's documentary, A Third Testament. And though she was very reticent in speaking about Dietrich, she actually did sat down with Malcolm Muggeridge and did this interview. And to me, that was incredible because we don't have mm-hmm. any video footage sort of, of Dietrich, but we have this interview with Maria and she's sharing what it was like to discover that her fiancé, they didn't know where he'd been taken. And so she goes to Flossenburg concentration camp in the waning days of the war, and she's looking for him, and she's carrying a heavy suitcase. And at the concentration camp, they have no information for her. But it was at Flossenburg concentration camp where Dietrich would be executed by hanging in April, just a few months after she was there. Well, it had to have been a traumatizing event to have fallen in love with someone who, for the bulk of their relationship, was in danger, and then ultimately to lose him to the Nazi regime just a short period before the end of, of the war. Well, let me invite you to introduce our audience to uh, to her and to tell us more about her life before her relationship with Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Well, I love talking about Maria because, like I said, she for a very long time she was this hidden figure in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life whom a lot of people knew very little about. Um, Maria was the third of seven children, and she was from an upper-class family in Pomerania, Prussia. Her father was very anti-Nazi at a time when everyone was going right along with what Hitler was doing, and her, but her father actually even refused to hang a swastika on his property. And her uncle and cousin, Henning von Treskow and Fabian von Schlabendorf, were very key in the resistance and conspiracy. So she came from this family, this group of people who were all very devoted to God and were thinking things through versus going blindly along with the masses. And so when Dietrich met Maria in the summer of 1942 at the home of Maria's grandmother, Maria was 18 and Dietrich was 36. So there's right from the get-go, there's this obstacle, this age difference. Mm-hmm. But as Dietrich and Maria, they spent an evening together at Maria's grandmother's house. There was this connection between them, a friendship between them, and even this attraction that Dietrich had not felt for another woman. Um, there was one woman in his life earlier, but he really, this was really almost the first time he was experiencing this attraction to this woman at such a unlikely time in his life for him to experience it. And Maria was so incredible. She was very independent and free thinking, and she wanted to study mathematics at a time when German women were supposed to marry and have large families for the furtherance of the Reich. And so I just, I loved studying her and loved discovering who she was. She loved those around her fiercely and was very close to her father and her brother, Max, both of whom were killed within months of each other just shortly after she met Dietrich. Now, that was one of the obstacles, the age difference between the two, but certainly the timing of this relationship. They spent really very little time together. Most of their relationship was long distance or or through letters. And of course, there's uh, the war that's uh, that's breaking out there as well, and Germany is at the the heart of all of that. Talk about some of the difficulties and why their relationship still happened despite those difficulties. Oh, the difficulties the two two faced. Wow, yes, in many ways the relationship should have been impossible until it wasn't. One of them was that after Maria's brother's death, Maria's mother found out that Maria's grandmother had been doing matchmaking between Dietrich and Maria because Maria was spending time with her grandmother in Berlin, and Maria's grandmother was very keen on the idea of getting her granddaughter married off to someone whom she looked up to as much as she looked up to Dietrich. And 
but Maria's mother was discouraging them from pursuing a future with each other because she didn't want Maria to become involved with a man whose true activities were shrouded in such danger. And so after they became engaged in January of 1943, but Dietrich and Maria didn't see each other again until that June, until after Dietrich has been imprisoned in Tegel. But what was fascinating to me is on April 5th, the very day of Dietrich's arrest, this, this sense of unease comes over Maria, and she writes this letter to Dietrich in her diary, and she writes, Dear Dietrich, has something bad happened? I'm afraid it's something very bad. And she, so Maria was sensing deeply that something had happened to Dietrich, and indeed it had. On that very day was the day that he was arrested. Hmm. Now, she was uh, profoundly uh, deep in her own faith, and uh, being connected with someone who was standing firm against the Nazi regime because of his faith. Um, how did that impact the, the, her life of faith, uh, the challenges of staying connected with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, the culture around her, and knowing that he was in danger and there was a possibility that that relationship would not uh, result in uh, them having the opportunity to come together as a, a couple that, that wanted to marry? Well, both of them did deeply struggle, especially as the Dietrich was in prison in Tegel and months went on and on, and he wasn't being released. At first, they thought he was going to be released rather quickly, but his trial kept getting dragged out, and so they kept waiting and waiting. And Maria started to suffer physically. She started to suffer um, like almost like a nervous breakdown is what she went through because she was, they really, they deeply wanted to share this future together. And Dietrich didn't want, he didn't set out to be a martyr. And in the end, that was mm-hmm. what it came down to, but that wasn't what he set out to do. He wanted to marry the woman he loved. He wanted to have a future with her. And one of the things that I include in the book is a poem that Dietrich wrote about this separation entitled The Past. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer had wrote several poems in prison, and this is one of them. And I include portions of it in the novel. It's absolutely beautiful. It's this tribute to how much he loves her, how hard it is to be separated from her. He was a very reserved person, and it's one of the times when he lets all of those barriers fall and just shows the way he truly feels about her. Mm. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. Again, we're talking this afternoon about a fascinating book. It's simply titled My Dearest Dietrich, a novel of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's love, uh, or rather lost love. She stays uh, true and faithful to the story itself, and I think for those of you who uh, believe uh, you know something about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This is a glimpse into another aspect of his life that I think will reinforce your regard for him and certainly the woman that he loved. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Amanda Barrett. She is the author of many novels. Her latest is a novel about uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's lost love titled My Dearest Dietrich. And you have the opportunity to learn more about uh, his love for this young woman who was uh, significantly younger than he, but also about her and what kind of remarkable woman would have captured his heart and the impact of events that were taking uh, taking place around them during this time. Well, tell us about some of the other key characters of the book and how they played a part in Dietrich and Maria's story. You mentioned that uh, there was a bit of matchmaking going on early on, but who are some of the other characters? To research was Dietrich's um, brother-in-law, Hans von Denani, because Hans is the one who got Dietrich, a pastor, involved in the conspiracy. Hans worked for the Abwehr, which was German military intelligence, and he, very early on, the Bonhoeffer family was in the know about what was going on, the horrors that were taking place, because Hans was 
asked to compile a dossier of Nazi crimes where he detailed the atrocities that were going on in Poland, corruption that was going on in the high Nazi officials. And so after Dietrich returned from a trip to America where he'd intended to be there during the war, but he felt God leading him to go back to Germany to stand with the German people at their time of suffering. And so when he arrived back in Germany, his brother-in-law um, helped him to get a place in the Abwehr so he wouldn't have to fight in the Weimar at the time because he didn't feel that he could participate in Hitler's war of aggression. But he became involved in the conspiracy, and he was supposed to be, what he did was he went to neutral countries like Switzerland and Sweden, supposedly to further the cause of the Reich, but in reality he was having secret meetings with people who were loyal to the Allies, trying to get them to pass on word to the Prime Minister to that there was this conspiracy in Germany and they desperately needed British support. You um, were able to connect with uh, someone that had been connected to Maria. First of all, how did you find him, referring to Bishop Kenneth Kenner, and what was that like for you, having studied and researched about her life, uh, to meet someone who knew her personally and could give you some insight? A mutual friend connected us, and it was an absolute honor because I never anticipated at the start of writing this book that I would be able to sit down with someone who actually knew Maria. I actually had a phone conversation with him, and that was a great honor. He was um, her pastor in the 1960s when she lived in a town called Easton, Connecticut, and he shared with me his memories of her. He didn't know her incredibly well, but he one time she did sit down and talk to him a little bit about Dietrich, and she shared that how she believed if Dietrich were living in the 1960s, how he would be actively participating in the um, what was going on with the African American people. He'd be standing up for them if he were living in America at the time, is what she was saying. Mm-hmm. What she told him, and so to me that was just incredible to hear her her memories of Dietrich as as well much as Bishop Kinnert told me. Mm. Well, that had to have been. Uh, very interesting to meet with someone who had known her personally. Well, in the notes at the end of My Dearest Dietrich, you say that Maria never talked much about Dietrich. Why do you think that was? Was it simply heartbreak? Were these personal reflections that she wanted to keep to herself? Or was this just more culturally um, appropriate at the time for a young woman not to speak extensively even about her famous uh, fiance. Well, I believe that that goes back to that the fact that I believe we all can relate to that when something is closest to us, when something is deepest in our heart, we don't often like to bring it out into the surface and plaster it all over for everyone to see. And that was especially true of people following World War II. Maria moved to America after the war, and so she was very much focused on starting a new life there and moving on. And so she cherished Dietrich in her heart. They never had a picture taken together. They never had, she never had a a lot of tangible um, links to him. She did have the letters, but that was about it. And so what she had of him, those memories, those letters, she cherished and she kept um, close to herself. Through uh, My Dearest Dietrich, those who may not be familiar with him will become better acquainted with uh, with him and his important work. Was there anything about him that you learned as in the process of writing this book about his relationship to the love of his life that you hadn't known before or that might be surprising to us? Well, I love discovering Dietrich, and I love discovering him not only as an author, a pastor, a theologian, and a man of resistance, and those are the ways that we know him very well, but as this very human, even flawed man, because I think it's tempting to consign heroes of faith to a pedestal, but I think that and I think that we all could agree that that makes them distant and unrelatable. And so the Dietrich that I came to know, who I discovered, that though he lived out his faith and lived out costly discipleship, he was 
also a very human man who struggled with raw emotions of fear, who fell in love at the most unlikely time in his life and who, who even fought that very falling in love. And so that was the Dietrich Bonhoeffer who became most real to me throughout the research and the writing process, not the whole person, not just this cardboard cutout labeled brilliant theologian and martyr. What do you think uh, those of us who may be somewhat familiar with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, even his love life, um, or not, what we might glean from their story that is relevant to us today, not just their relationship to one another, but their relationship to the culture and the decision that each of them made to stand firm in their faith against what was a very popular movement among their peers? Oh, there are so many things. Bonhoeffer, he wrote, there are some very poignant things that he wrote, and one of them that I love is he wrote that only those who cry out for the Jews have the right to sing Gregorian chants. And when I read that, I pondered that for a while, and I thought, what if we took that seriously today? What if we said only those who speak out for the persecuted, only those who stand out for the suffering have the right to sit in church pews and sing hymns? And I just, to me, that struck me and convicted me Mm -hmm. in my own walk. You know, am I living daily discipleship out? Am I living in costly grace? He wrote in The Cost of Discipleship the concept of cheap grace and costly grace. And costly grace is living like the cross matters. Costly grace is living that Jesus sacrificed all for me. I deserve to sacrifice. I must sacrifice my life for him. That's the only faith to live. And that is the faith that Dietrich Bonhoeffer lived out daily. And it's the faith that I believe we all as Christians should be seeking toward. And he is a wonderful role model for that. Not that he was perfect but that he did serve God in a very difficult Mm -hmm. time in history. What impact did the relationship that Maria had with Dietrich Bonhoeffer have on her after his death? Did she ever marry? Was she able to establish a a relationship with someone else and and have a family? How did this um, early season in her life impact her latter years? Well, she didn't discover Dietrich's death until the summer of 1945, and she did. She moved to America a couple of years after the war, and she studied at Bryn Mawr University and gained a master's degree in mathematics, and she did marry twice, but sadly, both of her marriages ended in divorce. Although she, with her first husband, she had two sons, Paul and Christopher, whom she loved deeply, and after her second divorce, she moved to Boston, where she rose in the ranks at Honeywell Computers, where she worked, and she became the head of her department in software engineering, which to me was astonishing for a woman at that time. I mean, that obviously just speaks to her strength, her intelligence, just the amazing person that she was. And Mm -hmm. she was diagnosed with cancer in 1977, and four months later, she passed away at the age of 53, leaving her sister, Ruth Alice, the um, the task of publishing her correspondence with Dietrich. Mm. How did writing this particular novel, being a novelist and this not being your first work, how did this impact you personally, Um, reading the intimate uh, communication between these two um, very important people and then having the charge to write about them? Well, it was a very daunting task because we're dealing with Dietrich Bonhoeffer here. But in the end, story is story and faith is faith, whether we're talking about faith during World War II or faith today. And so I was deeply, it was very hard to write the final scenes of the book because I became, I spent years working and researching on this project and to get to those final scenes knowing that Dietrich and Maria were never going to marry, never going to have the future that Mm. they so desperately longed to have. It It was very heartbreaking for me, but in a way, I believe that their story really, it speaks to the fact of what it is to be a disciple of Christ. Dietrich wrote that 
when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And though I don't think he meant that literally, in the end, that was what it came down to for him. And in the end, we as Christians need to be thinking, is that, am I prepared to yeah. die for my faith if, if that comes to it? And because he was willing to, we're still talking about him today, and because she was willing to love someone who had that kind of commitment, we still remember her as well. I'm so grateful that you wrote the book because you have a deep um, regard for their faith and you write faithfully about their relationship and challenge all of us who read the book, My Dearest Dietrich, to consider our faith more seriously as well. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Appreciate it. Again, the book is titled My Dearest Dietrich, a novel of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's lost love by Amanda Barrett. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Taking a quick look at some of our guests for this next week, we'll be talking with Steve King, author of Beware the Slow Leaks, Eight Ways Ministry Leaders Can Thrive and Finish Strong. The book is published by Salem, and he'll be joining us tomorrow on the program. On Wednesday, I'm looking forward to our annual Union Gospel Mission Summer of Safety Radiothon. Uh, This time around, we're going to focus on women and children on the streets of Portland. And it really is a heartbreaking story of abuse and neglect and, and so many wrong choices made by those individuals and others who impact their lives. But uh, the good news is there's an opportunity for us to support these women and their children. Uh, homelessness is a certainly a serious problem in our community, but for women and, and their children, it's a much more difficult and challenging road to navigate. And Union Gospel Mission, through their um, Life Change program, is making a significant difference in the lives of women by helping them to transform their lives so that they can become strong parents and um, can Uh, be productive members of society. I've had an opportunity to attend several events focusing on life change, women and children, and I am so impressed and grateful for that work. And that will be the subject of our conversation on Wednesday and the opportunity you'll have to support that ongoing work. On Thursday, we'll talk with Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart, Soaring to Glory, a Tuskegee Airman's firsthand account of World War II. And I don't know if you know the story of the Tuskegee Airmen, but these were African-Americans who uh, were well-educated, well-trained, who wanted to be aviators. And the road that uh, took them uh, to that opportunity was uh, very long and difficult. They ended up being uh, aces that were unrivaled uh, during World War One, and the very uh, white airmen that did not want to allow them to fly or didn't want to have anything to do with them ended up really requesting that they escort them on some of their missions because they were so skilled in their um, their uh, abilities. So we're going to talk with um, Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart. Again, the book is titled Soaring to Glory, a Tuskegee Airman's First-Hand Account of World War Two. one of my favorite uh, stories uh, from World War II, although it's uh, it's a painful story to have to share, but that's coming up on Thursday. And then on Friday, we'll take a look at the lighter side of the news. Well, Liberty Council is declaring victory in a church zoning case. It uh, took place in the Ventura County Superior Court, and they have apparently dismissed a significant portion of a lawsuit that was brought by the uh, Dos Vientos Community Preservation Association. 
and Donald Armstrong, an individual, in an attempt to force the city of Thousand Oaks to discriminate against a California church and a nonprofit organization. In Dos Vientos Community Preservation Association versus City of Thousand Oaks, Liberty Council represented a nonprofit foundation that purchased a former YMCA building and entered into an agreement to rent it to Godspeak Calvary Chapel Church. So it was what it intended to be, a YMCA, but there were times when they didn't use the facility and they agreed to rent it out to Godspeak. It's a Calvary Chapel Church. Well, the alleged association consisting of a few individuals stated that the church's use has not been cleared under the California Environmental Quality Act. Now, my guess is the concern really wasn't about the California environment, but nonetheless, the plaintiffs argue that the church should not be considered a religious organization entitled to protection under the religious land use and treatment uh, or industrialized um, persons act that requires that religious organizations receive equal treatment as do other organizations and government zoning um, decisions. Well, the city and Liberty Council argued and the court now agrees um, that um, the church, uh, that the law rather, does not apply and that the plaintiffs missed the deadline to file the claim. Well, the claim represents about 90% of the, the claim filed by the plaintiffs. The court dismissed with uh, uh, dismissed it with prejudice, meaning it cannot be refiled. Well, Liberty Council um, will return to court later this month for the dismissal hearing on the remaining 10% of that claim. Well, the city supports the church's right to be in the building for religious use and worship. But a few neighbors formed an association, as I mentioned, about nine people, and filed suit objecting to a church renting the same facility. Well, the uh, discrimination is often referred to as not in my backyard. That's how it's now been coined. Uh, the pastor of Godspeak Calvary Chapel Church is also the mayor of Thousand Oaks. He provided uh, a lot of support and prayer following the tragic shooting last year at a place of entertainment. Well, the foundation purchased the building from the YMCA in January 2018. The building is located in a commercial complex as part of a larger residential and commercial development in the city. The overall development was approved by the city back in 2002. Well, the city approved an environmental impact report and development permit as required under the law and other states. State, uh, provisions. Part of that consideration for approval of the project was that the developer would uh, donate a parcel of land to the local YMCA for uh, it to build a center in the neighborhood. Well, the YMCA built and operated a center before it closed in December of 2017, so it hasn't been um, uh, that center for a couple of years. The YMCA then sold the property, including the building, to the foundation, which intends to make minor changes and then allow Calvary Chapel to use that facility. Well, the uh, foundation applied for the necessary permits from the city, which determined that no new environmental review was required under the, the provision there because there would only be minor changes to the property and the use of the property for the church, like the use of the property for the YMCA is permitted in that commercial zoning, uh, says the um, Founder and chairman of Liberty Council, Matt Staver, we are pleased that the Ventura County Superior Court dismissed the major portion of this frivolous lawsuit against the Christian church. Uh, it is a violation of the law to welcome a YMCA but refuse a church. We are thankful that the city of Thousand Oaks supports the church and that the court ruled in our favor. We look forward to the full dismissal of that case this month, which, as I mentioned, will come on the 20th of June. Now, one of the things that we're seeing quite often is that uh, there's an effort to prevent churches from being able to settle into communities, whether by renting property that's uh, already being used by some other organization or purchasing property within uh, certain areas. So this is a, a victory in Thousand Oaks 
that has become more rare these days in a um, in a at a time I should say when churches are less and less welcome uh, to use their facilities. But in this case, in Ventura County, the Superior Court dismissed a significant portion of that lawsuit. That was back on the seventh. By the, um, uh, they're calling themselves the Dos Vientos Community Preservation Association, and Donald Armstrong, another individual who apparently is not part of the association but was in agreement with it, their attempt to force the city uh, to discriminate against that California church and a uh, nonprofit organization that was making the facility available to them for their use for the purpose of worship. And one of the things that uh, many churches are attempting to do and have uh, attempted to do is to be good neighbors so that um, there's not an an unwelcome mat that's rolled out. There is uh, a move afoot in various places around the country to just uh, suggest that churches have no place in society at all, and therefore they should be deprived of every opportunity to meet in a facility in a given uh, area. Uh, But being a good neighbor is an important part of being a part of the community, particularly if you want to um, influence that community and uh, certainly not give reason for uh, objecting uh, objecting to your presence. So anyway, that's a bit of a a happy ending in a story that's being repeated uh, far too often all across the, uh, the country. Once again, tomorrow we're going to talk with Steve King. He's the author of Beware the Slow Leaks, Eight Ways Ministry Leaders Can Thrive and Finish Strong. I mean, who doesn't want to thrive and finish strong? We'll talk about that tomorrow on the program. Also want to thank James Blend for producing and Clark Hilton for engineering today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com. <laughs>